as we uh, get to our time in the Word this morning. I'm taking, a, as I mentioned last week, taking just this Sunday a break from Revelation. We'll, we'll finish that up next week. I think we'll just wrap up the, the book of Revelation next Sunday. Uh, but for now, uh, before I get to our Bible text, I want to lead us in a prayer. So would you join me? Your word tells us, Father, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We know that uh, while food sustains us physically, uh, it cannot sustain us spiritually, and we need far more. What we need is to hear from you. And Father, you have appointed that uh, servants of yours should uh, declare your truth, uh, flawed as we are. Uh, your spirit is pleased to use this proclamation for... for um, enlightening us to uh, your character, for making us wise to salvation, uh, for sanctifying us by the very truth of your word. And so, God, as your servant in this, I need your help. Um, and I pray that you would give us all that, uh, that sensibility uh, that we're expecting to hear from you, that we can look past the man uh, standing up front and, and seek to hear uh, directly from you, Lord. So we pray that you would accomplish that, and, uh, and we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. I think it's a, a great thing in this nation that uh, we have a day on the calendar to express our collective gratitude. We had turkey with our family, and I'm sure many of you did too. But you know, I noticed that instead of calling it Thanksgiving Day, more and more people, and maybe this is TV commercials, more and more people are calling it Turkey Day. Turkey Day. I wonder, when did the poor bird get center stage? There seems some absurdity to it, as if we've stripped away uh, the, the meaning. It's like calling Christmas Beef Tenderloin Day, or, or Memorial Day Brats and Beer Day, or, or, or Independence Day Steak and Burger Day, or Easter Glazed Ham Day. But that's absurd, isn't it? But Thanksgiving, we had it. I trust that you celebrated. Uh, but I think what I want to do this morning is just look back to that and, and spend our time this morning thinking about gratitude. Because really, if anything marks us as believers, as a distinguishing mark, there's lots of things in the Bible that do mark us as, as believers in the Lord Jesus, as the people of God, but certainly one that we uh, must inhabit or in, that must inhabit us is that just sense of, of gratitude. Gratitude. And not only in an appointed day, not just on Thursday, but, but everyday gratitude that's rightly, rightly directed towards God. Hebrews chapter 12 is where I'm looking this morning. Just want to look at a single verse as we unpack this together. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. There, in fact, uh, the, the context of it, uh, there in Hebrews chapter 12, what is being contrasted is the terror that the Israelites who were receiving the covenant, which was which was getting them ready effectively as a people constituting them to, to come into the land that God had promised to, to build a nation out of them, contrasting the terror that they experienced at Mount Sinai, contrasting that with what Jesus Christ accomplished as the mediator of the new covenant. And he writes this. This is Hebrews 12, verse 28. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus 
let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. The word of God to us this morning. So from that, there are two simple exhortations for this season and for every moment of every day of every year. Two simple exhortations, be grateful and worship. And the foundational reason for that gratitude and for worship is something we possess in part now, but will fully enjoy in eternity. So first, I want to talk about being grateful, being grateful for a kingdom, being grateful for a kingdom. Now, I, I feel like I've, I've said this or illustrated this way before, but I, I, I was drawn again to, to think about when we uh, in this nation consider what is the best form of government. Americans think constitutional republic. That's kind of the default thinking. And we think it's the best in the world, right? That's not a pure democracy, but, but still a government structure that is by and for the people. Certainly, certainly it's something for which we can be grateful because the freedoms that it allows us, allows us to meet together like this. But we know, <laughs> all we have to do is follow the news. We know that this form of government has its flaws. And those become increasingly more apparent as those who find themselves in power or seemingly those who have lusted for power, they ultimately indulge themselves and shield themselves from accountability. It's everyday news. We're not surprised by this. But when we read our Bibles, the thing that we discover is that the kind of government, the kind of government established by God, and therefore the most perfect, the best form of government, is a kingdom. And that's a kingdom with a perfect king. Now in terms of a kingdom, in, in human terms, if we think about that, we would think maybe a geographical domain over which a king rules. Now in the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel was realized in a specific domain, the land of Canaan that was promised to Abraham. Ultimately, it was possessed under Joshua. It was ruled over by God with an anointed vice regent, and, and we could consider King David being the sort of a, the pinnacle example. That kingdom, I take it, was a prefiguring type for the eternal kingdom of God. But as a type, it was a dim reflection. It was flawed in many ways. It was flawed because King David was flawed. And over time, in succeeding generations, the kingdom of Israel eventually collapsed in on itself from moral decay and idolatry. But to David was given this, this promise of a forever and a better kingdom with his own descendant as king. And you can find that in 2 Samuel 7, uh, verses uh, 10 through 16. And ever since that time, the, the prophets, and you can just read through the Old Testament, ever since that time, the prophets reiterated the promise of a Messiah which simply means anointed one, and the New Testament word we have is Christ. That promise was there in the scriptures. And as we turn to our New Testaments, the, the Gospels and Acts and the, the New Testament epistles, all of that declare that Jesus is the Christ, meaning that he is the king of God's kingdom. Now here we are in the book of Hebrews, and, and I would say that the book of Hebrews simply makes the case that Jesus fulfilled the messianic expectation of a king, Hebrews 1.8. He fulfilled that messianic expectation as well of a priest, Hebrews 4.14. 4, 
And in him was the fulfillment of all of the covenant promises ultimately given through Moses. That's Hebrews 8, 6. And from Jesus' own teaching about the kingdom, we know that the reestablishment of the kingdom, which had collapsed due to moral decay, that previous kingdom under David and successive Israelite kings that, that I would say was a prefiguring type of something greater, that the reestablishment of the kingdom began first as a spiritual domain, a domain over which Christ rules. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were likely asking this with suspicious motives, but they asked Jesus about the kingdom, and this is what he said to them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. You can look around you and see an earthly domain or, or a king sitting on a throne or some government structure around. No, he says it's not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And when Jesus said, in the midst of you, he was speaking about himself as the Christ. So, if you, this morning, if you recognize that Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God, if you recognize that, it's because you understand that apart from the Son of God becoming a man, apart from that fact, apart from his vicarious death in your place on the cross, that that was for your sin, apart from his victory over sin and death, ultimately accomplished in his own resurrection from the grave, apart from, and this is important, apart from believing in him and what he has accomplished, apart from all that, you'd be an enemy of God. You'd be an outsider to the kingdom of God. But indeed, if you have, if you have trusted in Christ, you have become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, submitted now to the spiritual rule of Christ. And when Christ returns to the earth, that spiritual rule will be completed in a physical earthly kingdom where the nations will be his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. That was promised in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. And yet to be fulfilled, we Studied that in Revelation 21 last week. So between now and that fulfillment, Jesus taught, pray to the Father, your kingdom come. Pray that that earthly rule, that the beginning with the spiritual rule, that the spiritual rule of Christ will be realized increasingly. And then we look forward to the day of his return. And that prayer, of course, was predicated on the very fact that Jesus affirmed that it is indeed the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's Luke 12.32. So then, knowing that in some sense we possess a kingdom, but we're also receiving a kingdom, it says in Hebrews, that should change our perspective about the times we live in and the kind of priorities that we have as the people of God. And here's where the kingdom and the church intersect. And I'm getting a little uh, maybe theologically wonky here, but I think it's important that we think about this. Jesus said, I will build my church. That's his doing, right? But he said that, I believe, in order to keep us as his people kingdom-focused. So as we gather like this, we're reminded 
that Jesus is our king. We're reminded of that fact. But we also gather in order to give a collective witness. We're here together. We're giving this collective witness to the world every time we gather about his eternal kingship. So we're saying that to the world every time we come into this place and gather together. I realize that some Christians confuse or, or even conflate the church and the kingdom. And they speak as though the church has been tasked with building the kingdom. Have you ever heard that? We build the kingdom. Now, the church's mission is disciple-making. That's certainly our responsibility. But Hebrews says we're receiving the kingdom. We're not building the king. We're not building the kingdom because our kingdom has already been, I'm sorry, our king has already been anointed. That's Christ. We're not building the kingdom because the kingdom's subjects are already known to Christ. And because we're not building it but receiving it, what that means is that the disciple-making mission is what we do. And what that is, is proclaiming that the kingdom's king is the Christ. It's the very thing that Peter said to Jesus on behalf of all the disciples when, when he asked them the question, who do, who do people say that I am? They gave various answers. Jeremiah, one of the prophets, John the Baptist, back from the dead. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the kingdom's king, the anointed one, the Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said he'd build the church on that declaration. As we gather together agreeing, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. As citizens of the kingdom, we're, we're looking forward to that day that he will return. So that's the message we proclaim. We tell it to one another. And when we leave this place, we're ready with it on our lips to anyone who might ask. So we proclaim the gospel. And through the gospel, then, the church gathered identifies kingdom citizens and helps them grow. Helps them grow into those who reflect the very character of Christ to reflect his image. And the other thing that happens as well, when we proclaim that message, that gospel message, and this is sad, that same gospel message, that word about Christ, the kingdom's king, that he is the son of the living God, that same message will condemn those who refuse to believe it. But that's not up to us. So we announce, we plead, we pray, and God draws through the gospel. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his first epistle. He said to them, look, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So here's the point. Why do I say all that? If we get this wrong, if, if we are building the kingdom, if we tell followers of Jesus that they can build the kingdom, what they build will totter and wobble. It will be shaken and fall. And this happens a lot. I'm not talking about churches um, stagnating and dying because they're out in some rural community where everybody moves away. I mean, that happens. I'm talking about churches that move into doctrinal error where they, they get sort of bravado about what they're doing in the world. We're going to change the world. We're going to build the kingdom of God. No, you're not. And when they, when they have that bravado, they risk falling under the influence of 
prosperity teaching and all kinds of heresies because, hey, we got to be effective. And so whatever it takes to get the people, let's do that. Now, that's not you. That's not us. But it matters that we use the right terminology. Be grateful that you are receiving a kingdom. And it's a kingdom, unlike what we might attempt to build on our own, it's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so receiving the kingdom means that we joyfully receive the rule of Christ now as we anticipate his return. And of course, the kingdom cannot be shaken because Jesus Christ himself bore in his own body the eternal consequence of our collective and individual failure. Going back to Adam in the garden, our failure, our absolute failure to use the good that God had given, all those good things that God had given to ultimately glorify him and, and make a beautiful world, <laughs> we failed that project. Jesus paid the eternal consequence of our failure. Man's sin distorts, divides, corrupts, and kills. So the kingdom that we are receiving, that Jesus is king of, it cannot be shaken because of Christ and who he is. Now, I do have to say this. Because it's true that the kingdom cannot be shaken doesn't mean that we don't feel shaken. Maybe you're having trouble financially, struggling to make ends meet. feel like things are shaken. You feel shaken. Maybe you're in a difficult marriage or... Yours has already ended in divorce. Maybe despite your best, absolute best efforts, you have been alienated from a child or a brother or a sister or a parent. Maybe you feel shaken because you've been diagnosed with a terminal disease. Maybe you feel shaken because, well, you know what the Bible says. You know God is sovereign over all things but you still deal with this pervasive anxiety or depression. Maybe you feel shaken because you're lonely. Your spouse has died. Now look, I'm not suggesting that we're to be grateful for these things. Thank you, Lord, that I get cancer. I'm not saying that. I don't think the Bible exhorts us to do that. But if we are receiving a kingdom if we're receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, then we can be grateful through these things. Be grateful through. Because that full reception of the kingdom ultimately has us focused when Christ returns. So we can be grateful through suffering. We can be grateful through loss. We can be grateful through because looking on the other side, God has so, so much more in store for us. We take exhortation from 2 Corinthians. If you're suffering in any way, here's what the Apostle Paul says. We do not lose heart. Not losing heart is not giving up on gratitude. My interpretation, but I think it fits. We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed. Here's what he says. For this light, 
momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, those are transient. But the things that are unseen, those are eternal. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever you're going through, lift your eyes, look beyond the here and now, and thank God. He has so, so much more in store for you. Well, secondly, if you are grateful, and I think we have much to be grateful for, then worship God. That's that second very simple exhortation. Worship God. Uh, a good thing that parents do, I trust as parents you do this, you teach your children to say thank you, right? That matters. It matters. Now, some of you hosted a, a Thanksgiving dinner. Um, you prepared, I believe, for days. You decided on the side dishes, buying enough food, watching the YouTube video 10 times to figure out how much time the turkey needed. As I went through this so many times, 21 pounds meant it should have been somewhere around four hours. Why was it done in three? I have no clue. It was a little dry. That's on me, not Kath. Anyway, we do these things, right? You, you prepare. You, you, you want to know how to carve it properly? Oh, there's a way, right? Now, getting the house cleaned, that's all part of it, right? Setting the table. Now, our children and, and our guests, they were very gracious. They expressed their thanks, and our grandkids are learning it too. That's great. But just imagine with me, okay? So after all this preparation, you're the host. Imagine, and this wasn't my kids at all. Imagine everyone coming to your house, gobbling all the food, and leaving without saying anything to you, as if they were entitled to it all. You might be a little miffed, right? Maybe a little bit offended. Well, God owes us nothing. Nothing at all. He has given us a kingdom. How can we not give thanks? The abundance that we have promised for us, as the Apostle Paul says, these light and momentary afflictions, it's like preparing us for a weight of glory we can't even imagine. God owes us nothing. Thus, it says, as the verse continues, hence, therefore, because we're receiving a kingdom, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let us do that. You're getting this kingdom. You're receiving it. You're under the rule of Christ now. He died for your sins. He rose again on the third day. He has prepared a, a glorious existence for you with him forever. Therefore, thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, this may not be exactly true, but here's how I was thinking about it. Gratitude is what you feel inside, right? But when it's expressed to God, it's worship. Gratitude is what you feel, but when it's expressed, 
its worship. So what is expressed, what is, sorry, what is acceptable worship according to the writer of Hebrews? Well, it doesn't explain it, but I take it it's expressing gratitude to God for what he has given, and in this case, a kingdom. It's also expressing gratitude for who God is and what he has revealed about himself. So I have to come to some other part of scripture to get an understanding. What's this worship look like? What is worshiping God with reverence and awe that is acceptable? And I'm brought, I was brought again to, to John chapter 4 and, and Jesus' encounter with the woman from Samaria. And she asked Jesus a question, and she wanted to know about the right place of worship. John chapter 4. And Jesus explained, it wasn't about a place, but about the heart behind the expression. So there's expression, but the heart mattered. He told her what the Father seeks, and this is instructive for us as we think about what is acceptable worship. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Now, God is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. And if you're in Christ today, if you're a child of God, that should make your ears perk up. Go, God is seeking worshipers. And we should be putting up our hands. I'm one of those. I want to be one of those. Now, Jesus says, worship in spirit. So worship that is ex ex uh, acceptable to God is in spirit. And spirit means, I just take it to mean genuine. It's from within. It's, it's actually something you, you, you actually believe and feel. Now, it's important because there's a kind of worship that is not for God, but as a display to others. And Jesus called out Pharisees in his own day, whose religious observance was only for show, and here's what he said. You must not be like the hypocrites, as he called them, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. They did their religious stuff out in public, right? They valued the affirmation and adulation of others more than they loved God. And really, when you think about it, that's really self-worship. Look at me. I'm religious. Look at me. I worship God. Look at me. I do my prayers. Look at me. That's self-worship. I think we'd agree there's something that is uh, deeply offensive when someone flatters you, but you can see through it, right? So they say kind things. They, they do nice things for you, and they do it with this sort of pasted-on smile just that, so that they can put on a show for others or to get something out of you. If you think about it, why would God be pleased with heartless worship, empty worship, going through the motions, doing our religious duty with no heart in it, coming to church, dragging our feet? Well, I guess I got to go. People see me there. I'm not saying that's any of you. <laughs> and, and I will say, there are times, there are times when we're tempted to think about it as mere duty. But from this verse, I want us to rattle that away and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what am I doing here? Let us offer to God acceptable worship, right? This, that, that fakery, that hypocrisy, it's what the Lord rebuked through the prophet Isaiah. He said, this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their heart is far from me. So it needs to be from the heart. 
And it can only be from the heart if your heart has been changed. It can only be from the heart if you, if you know deep inside that you're profoundly alienated from God by your own sin. Worship can only be from the heart if, if you see that apart from what he's accomplished for you, you'd be cast into the lake of fire. It can only be from the heart when you realize your own decisions would ultimately lead to death. Apart from God intervening, it can only be from the heart unless you... It can only be from the heart if you understand the mercy and grace of God to you. Well, lips that honor God, mouths that express praise with distant hearts, that's not worship. It's not in spirit, and therefore it is a lie. And that leads to the second part of Jesus' exhortation. Worship that is acceptable is in truth, in truth. And that truth is not only with regard to your own integrity, which, which, which is to say that your inward motives match your external acts, but truth is also related to objective reality. What is true about God? What is true about God? Our worship must recognize what is true about God. Now, our verse says worship, we must worship with reverence and awe. When you revere someone, when you respect someone, that's reverence. When you, when you actually feel that way about a person, and when you feel that way about God, you care what they say, right? Someone, if you say something, if you are respected, they will care. Now, now we're flawed in the things that we say, but at least the person listening will take to heart what you're saying. When we're listening to God, when, when God speaks, the only way we can practically revere him is to hear what he says and say, yes. So you cannot worship God and at the same time deny his word. The scriptures have been given to us so that we can know what God says about himself. Now, I'm not going to go into the various scriptures that point this out, but if you read your Bible, you discover that God is all-powerful. There isn't anything that he cannot do. God is all-knowing. There isn't anything that he does not know. The deepest thoughts, even before you think them, he knows what they are, right? The Bible tells us that God is ever-present. There isn't anywhere you can go to escape his presence. He knows exactly where you are. You cannot hide. God is all-wise. He applies knowledge perfectly in every, certain, every single circumstance. God is eternally good. There is nothing vile in him. There is nothing evil. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is wholly righteous. There is no wrong in him. God created everything, and we could go on and on and on. Worship that is separated from the word of God, worship that is separated from what God declares about himself leads to unacceptable worship. There are all kinds of people that, that meet on this Lord's day around the world that have conceived in their own minds what they think God to be. But it's unacceptable because they deny the word of God. See, the scriptures also tell us, and this is important, what God says about mankind. And I know I'm touching on hot-button cultural issues, but we've been made in the image of God to reflect his glory distinctly male and female. 
We need to understand God's word has been given so, so that human flourishing is ultimately about obedience to God's laws. All of human flourishing. We see the word of God. God has given that word. I mean, if we apply God's word perfectly across the globe and obey it, not that we have the power to do so, but what I'm saying is if that were a possibility, that would be the best possible society, right? Human flourishing. We also need to understand what the Bible says about us, that, that we are stained by our own sin, and that apart from God's mercy to us through Christ, we would be separated from him because we failed to keep God's law. We have to agree with that. We have to understand that the only way to true fellowship with God is through the Son of God. And the only way that to truly worship God, it begins with faith in the Son of God. Now, I think you all know this. God seeks our worship. But he doesn't seek because he needs it. God doesn't need to be, to be stroked and, and, and affirmed so that he can feel good about himself. God needs nothing from us. No, God seeks our worship because we need it. We so need to be worshipers of God. And we know this. Because the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1, tells us in Romans 1 what happens when people don't worship God. God who has clearly revealed himself in creation, Romans 1, 21. Here's, here's the opposite. Here's, here's, the, here's what happens when you don't worship God. Here's what he says. For although they knew God. Now, again, that whole chapter goes into the, the depravity of, of man and what happens when you embrace sin. God says, okay, you want it, you you can run your life, and here's what happens. But, but before we get to that, he says this. For all they knew, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became, here's three things, futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So they failed to worship God or give thanks. And we can take from that the opposite. We need to worship God because the opposite is true. So when you do indeed worship God and give thanks to him, you can think clearly and purposefully about all things. You can have a clear mind. When you do worship God and give thanks to him, your heart will be enlightened. When you do worship God and give thanks to him, you will become wise. Now, if you've ever watched a debate between an atheist and a, and a Christian, you know that the atheist is actually claiming to have all of those things, to be enlightened, to be wise, to have clear thinking. How deep their delusion. Do you believe the word of God? You need to worship God. I need to worship God and give thanks to him. See, if you're a child of God, you've been assured of a kingdom. And what that does, it puts everything else in perspective. Because until Christ returns, there may be suffering. There may be persecution, disease, danger, distress, death. But if you are in Christ, and if you believe the scriptures, you will conquer these things. And you will enjoy God's eternal kingdom with Christ, because Christ has conquered these things for you. It says in Romans 8, 
31 and 32, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question, meaning no one. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. So, this isn't an overly deep or complicated exhortation. It's just simply, how do we orient our lives? So, don't ever pass up an opportunity to express thanks to God for your salvation in Christ, for the promise of an eternal kingdom. I hope, I hope that each time you pray, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for not counting my sin against me, but putting it on your son. I hope that's a routine expression of yours in your heart. So pray it. Sing it. Say it to others. Let me encourage you to make gratitude to the Lord, your very first thought when you open your eyes in the morning. I know. It's like, oh, I can't wait to get my coffee. Thanks for the coffee, Lord. <laughs> make gratitude. I actually woke up today. And make it your last thought before you go to sleep. God, thank you for this day. Thank you that you were with me. Thank you that you love me. And let me encourage you, routinely express your gratitude for the simple joys in your life, for your loved ones, for fellow believers, for the church, for freedom to gather like this, for the work that you have, for the provisions, for the stuff. Routinely express your gratitude. And let me add this. Let me encourage you to express your, your thanks to God for grace to endure suffering that will surely come. Express your gratitude to God for, for the wisdom and endurance that comes from the experience of applying His Word and through the other believers in your life that, that reinforce that to you. Express that to God. And for the sake of your soul, open your mouths and sing, join when you hear others and gather together with us as the church. Because we're receiving a kingdom, because we're under the rule of Christ, because there isn't anything outside of his control, because we have the promise of eternal fellowship with him, matter of perspective, let your life be marked, not by complaining. And we're all tempted to do this, so I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. Oh, why is this going on? Why am I having this? Or why is this circumstance? Let your life be marked by gratitude, not for the suffering itself, but that God is with you through suffering. Two simple exhortations. Be grateful and express it to God in heartfelt, true worship. Now we read this together, but I want to end with it. 
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Save us, O God, of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to be people marked by gratitude. And I pray, I pray that the overflow of that will touch every aspect of our lives. That people outside of your family will see in us a transcendent confidence that, that you have so much for us in an eternal kingdom and you have given so much to us even now and that you have counted our sins against your son and you brought us into an eternal relationship with you that cannot be shaken or broken. God, let it be true of all of us that we're people who are grateful and delight to worship you so that Christ may be glorified among us. And we ask it all in his name.